morning, and thank you for joining us as we're coming to you tonight from New York City. We begin with some breaking news in one of the most consequential media trials in decades. Late this afternoon, the judge announcing a settlement was reached between Dominion Voting Systems and the cable media giant. Fox News paid Dominion a staggering 787.5 million US dollars. It was the largest defamation settlement ever made. Dominion was a winner. The damages spoke eloquently for Fox's culpability. But Fox was also a winner. It meant Rupert Murdoch would not have to get into the box. Fox made no apology and barely mentioned the settlement in its own news coverage. And then there was this. We have some news from within our Fox family. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. That's how Fox viewers learned their most popular host, Tucker Carlson, had been ousted from the network. It speaks to the disarray inside Fox News, something that my guest, former Guardian editor, Alan Rusbridger, is very familiar with. We discuss the Dominion settlement, what it means for journalism and democracy. Alan, great to be with you. Each of us have known Rupert Murdoch for many decades, and you, as editor of The Guardian, competed with him on three continents, in fact. How do you think this latest shocker with the uh, Dominion Voting Systems case compares to phone hacking, and do you think Murdoch's journalism is going to change. Well, the phone hacking um, saga was about criminality. Uh, I think it was easy-ish for Murdoch to say, well, this was, uh, you know, an isolated thing. We didn't know about it. Uh, we deplore it. The Dominion thing is is uh, far harder and, and far more damaging, I think, for Murdoch and for Fox. Fox was his uh, creation, a kind of brilliant, if awful, creation um, but he, he created the most important and successful news channel in the United States. And what this case has showed is that the, the, it was really an extension of politics. It was so ideologically driven that they had lost sense of whether truth mattered, whether facts mattered. Uh, it was so part of the political project that basic journalistic standards were deliberately junked with terrible consequences. Yes. I mean, I I first met Rupert Murdoch in the mid-'70s, so I've known him for nearly 50 years. But when I first got to know him, my impression was that while he was a hands-on proprietor, you know, and in effect the editor-in-chief, he was still, albeit in a tabloid style, still reporting the news. What seems to have happened with Fox is that it basically is no longer tethered to reality with all of those shocking consequences for our democracies. I mean, do do you think Murdoch's changed over the decades you've known him? Or do you think he was, you know, Fox News was just the natural output of his utterly cynical approach to journalism. Well, Murdoch's defenders have always said it's not about the politics. He's really just interested in the money. Uh, I think that's partly true. He's a complicated figure to talk about because he owns so much and they're all different in some ways. So in the UK, 
I would guess that he doesn't interfere very directly very much in the Times, but he interferes very directly and a great deal in the Sun. Um, but there are three things, I think, that that, that characterize the, the, this later period of, of Murdoch. One, one is the sense of impunity. We saw that with the, the phone hacking, that, that nobody wanted to take him on, uh, including the law enforcement agencies, including MPs, including, frankly, other journalists. Then there was the, uh, the thing you've been talking about, which was his intense interest in the political project. I think he's, he's got more political over the years and became really part of the Trump project uh, in a way that uh, it's hard to imagine 30, 40 years ago any, any newspaper quite bending themselves to the, the will of one politician. And the third thing is is the audience. So having created the audience, and I think you're right to say that that Fox played a very great part in creating the Trump movement, where Fox got into trouble over this Dominion story is that the audience felt a terrible sense of betrayal, <laughs> which ironically came through a, a piece of good journalism. The, the Fox newsroom called Arizona for Biden which was a key state, and they called it before anybody else did. The Fox News decision desk is calling Arizona for Joe Biden. I think a lot of people still aren't totally sure about Arizona either. Some people think that may have been called a little too early. Arizona, Shoot. are you 100% sure of that call and when you made it, and why did you make it? Absolutely. We made it after basically a half hour of debating, is it time yet? Because it was, it's, it's been clear for a while that the former vice president is in, in the lead in Arizona and was most likely to, to win the state. It has been in the category that we call knowable but not callable for about an hour. And that the audience felt betrayed. And the Fox executives could see the audience disappear in front of them in real time. So they became a prisoner of the very audience that they had created. Yes, it's, it's, it becomes like a cult. In fact, one of the counterterrorism experts called John Cohen, who talked about these issues with me on this podcast, compared the way in which right-wing media has radicalized so many Americans to the way in which ISIS and al-Qaeda used media, and particularly social media, to radicalize young Muslims. I think the, the moment of time that we're we're living in is a very, very dangerous one because we, we saw it during COVID and we're about to see it with climate change. But if, if you've got a society which no longer knows who to trust, what is true, what isn't true, not even the news media, then I think politics becomes impossible. You know, how, how can any politician lead, make, make the changes that we're going to need with climate change? If, if the audience, if the voters are not only not prepared for it, but have been told that the opposite is true. So politics becomes impossible, and I, I think uh, societies become uncohesive uh, to, to the point of disintegration. Why this matters is that the, the story that journalists are trying to say is, you need us, because in this world of information chaos, we're the ones you can trust. Uh, I, and I believe that, you know, I believe that, that, that what journalists do, their ability to say this happened, that didn't happen, this, this is right, that's wrong, is, uh, is a crucial one. But if it turns out that the most powerful media magnet of the world was indifferent to the truth, so indifferent that he knowingly uh, allowed 
and encourage people to say the opposite of the truth, then we're in dead trouble. That's why this story is such an important one. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I contend the, the Trump, the, the lie that, that Fox, for which Fox was the biggest amplifier, namely that uh, Trump had actually won the election and, you know, Biden had stolen it, is the most dangerously consequential lie ever told in American political history, at least in the lifetimes of anyone around today. Uh, because this country, the United States, was founded on a on an armed insurrection against illegitimate government. You know, it's it, it's political history and it's 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 founding. I was going to say founding myth, but it's not all myth. I mean, it's a you know it has been mythologized, but it's essentially the facts. It was a it was an armed revolution against illegitimate government. And so to say to Americans, particularly a country that, as we all know, is armed to the teeth, their crazy gun fascination, your government is illegitimate, the election has been stolen, I mean, is inviting an insurrection. I mean, Adam Kinzinger has made this point to me, that if you feed into people's brains lies about, you know, the political reality, if you tell them that their political opponents are not just people that disagree with them, but Satanists, then if once you start to believe that, you, you actually have, if from an American point of view, almost a constitutional duty to rise up and uh, seek to take action. And so that's why so many of the people who besieged the US Capitol on the 6th of January 2021 said that they were, you know, inspired, if that's the right word, to do it by what they'd seen on Fox News. That completely agree with that and you and I both know that there's another libel action uh, in the in the, the wings which is on this very subject uh, involving crikey and well you know you know Murdoch's dropped that case he's dropped it has he okay well <laughs> well that's that's a great shame in a way and and comes back to this point of impunity so um, I mentioned earlier that the, the the news of the world they put their hands up and people went to jail and they paid hundreds of millions in damages. What's happening at The Sun is that they're paying more hundreds of millions in damages, but not admitting liability. So there's this sense that, uh, which we've seen with this Dominion case, that Murdoch has got the money and he can buy his way out of any situation. So he clearly, it was a, a matter of, must have been a matter of dread for both uh, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, that they would end up in the witness box being cross-examined about what they knew and when they knew it. And so what do they do? Well, they write checks for hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds. And that's the pattern with this organization, that they, they evade the accountability that they demand of others through uh, buying people off. And so the public get, or a percentage of the public get fed with so many lies and conspiracy theories, they actually don't know what to believe. Uh, and so they're like they're susceptible to believing anything. What is the answer to that? Well, w one of the answers has to be to concentrate on truth and things that are true. So the best response to lies is the truth. That, that's the most basic thing. That only works if you've got a plurality of media. So you you have to have m multiple news sources in different forms of ownership uh, in order for that to work. And sadly, Murdoch 
tends to thrive in, in places where he has built up a total dominance. Then there's a question of scale. Uh, I sit on the oversight board of, of Facebook, and the scale of what's happening is so vast that I think many people doubt that, you know, how, however many guardians you've got, you're going to be up to the task of uh, combating the, the disinformation, the misinformation. In the end, the only way of combating this at scale is for all of us to become foot soldiers in the battle. And that has to begin in school. That has to begin training young people to be discerning and skeptical readers so that by the time they go out into the world, they're better equipped to, to question and to work out for themselves what's true and what's not. And I think only, only by us taking that kind of personal responsibility and being equipped to do so can we combat the scale of the problem that's with, that we're seeing uh, unroll. Alan, I, I agree with that. And I, I think that we have to take a whack-a-mole approach to lies, whether they're on social media or in you know, big media platforms like Fox, and publicly attack them and reject them and demonstrate that they're untrue. But let, let me just tease out this, the issue of media dominance. Increasingly, people now are in information silos. And I mean, this is the fundamental problem that we don't any longer have shared facts because too many people are living in a media bubble. Now, if that media bubble in an Australian context consists of, you know, the ABC, uh, the you know, Financial Review, the Herald, the Guardian, well, you're getting a range of views, but, but, but they're all more or less reality-based. But if your bubble consists of Fox in the United States or Sky News in Australia and a few Murdoch tabloids and then some crazy channels on Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere, you're living in an echo chamber. And, and so you, you've got this interesting paradox, which is that in the – and you've seen, we've seen this with electoral results in Australia – the Murdoch-dominated – right-wing media ecosystem has an audience large enough for Rupert to monetize and, as we see in Fox News, monetize very, very handsomely. It's hugely profitable. But it is not any longer an audience large enough to win national elections. The, the Murdoch media have vastly more influence over the centre-right of politics but less influence in the electorate at large. So the, it's this problem of the, the silos. I mean, how do you get, if somebody is on a diet of Fox News and they're being told one lie after another and they're, they're following other, you know, digital channels which more or less support that, how do you get your facts into that silo? How do you get them to actively seek alternatives? Well, one answer is lies in the idea of news as a public service. And um, I think increasingly, as people experience the, the thing you've just described, that of people living in parallel realities, people are beginning to think of news as a public service. And I, I certainly think of it that way, you know, as I said to begin with, that the future of our uh, planet, in some senses, depends on whether difficult decisions can be made uh, with the consent of people within the next 10, 20 years. The idea that news is so fundamental to a good democracy 
is one that's going to dawn on people. Whether it's going to dawn on people quickly enough, I don't know. Then you've got the problem that of market failure, that the market no longer is able to to sustain the kind of journalism, the good journalism that used to exist. So you've got a, a void where the market should work. Now, luckily, aren't we lucky, both in your country and mine, we do have a form of public service. It's called public service broadcasting. And the ABC is like the BBC, I think. The, the BBC is way, by a huge margin, the most trusted news source in, in the, the, the UK. Far more, far more, double, three times anything produced by uh, Rupert Murdoch. So you would think at this moment, policymakers would would be embracing the ABC and the BBC and saying, well, thank God we have got this spine of good, clean information which is available to everyone, because that would be a fantastic antidote, wouldn't it, to to this news, uh, this, this chaos. What, what has happened, uh, I think, both in Australia and certainly in the UK, is a concerted attempt by uh, elements of the right and politicians of the right to denigrate the BBC and the ABC. I can speak more comfortably about the BBC, but its, it's budgets have been slashed. It, it's constantly undermined by politicians in the Conservative Party. Uh, they've, they've parachuted in uh, their own people to uh, chair and run it. And this seems to me complete folly because we, we have this spine of information that is uh, with a business model that works uh, and yet people are trying to destroy it. And one final thing is, of course, the charge in that is being led by Rupert Murdoch. I mean, both he and his son James uh, have spoken of the BBC as though it was some kind of big brother Orwellian state-sponsored uh, engine of malign propaganda. They, they don't like the, the, the notion of a form of taxation going to pay for that. And secretly, they think their businesses would be more profitable if the BBC didn't exist. So that's the, the answer is there. Well, you know, I mean, that they've been a constant critic of the ABC in Australia. And I mean, actually, at one point, going back quite some years ago, when I was communications minister, the Murdochs were trying to argue that the ABC should not be involved in digital communications, you know, websites, social media, and anything. They're basically saying it should be confined to free-to-air television and, and radio. And I resisted that and, and actually entrenched their right to do that. But it is, look, no, I, I agree with you about that. I mean, but I don't think there is a voice in the English-speaking world, at least, that has been more influential in denying the reality of global warming and, uh, and holding up action, and I have experienced this firsthand in very intensely in Australia, than Murdoch's. I mean, he's uh, he has been right at the forefront of turning what should be simply a question of physics, i.e., you know, the impact of additional green, you know, volumes of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, turning that into an issue of ideology or propaganda. It is absolutely Certainly, it's been more intense in the United States and Australia than the UK, but it has absolutely been the single biggest roadblock to effective action on global warming. At some point, I would really like to see 
not just Murdoch journalists, but 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 journalists working for any of these news organizations that are denying or being skeptical about climate change. I think at some point that, that these journalists have to speak up and take a stand. Why? Because it's catastrophic on two fronts. I mean, it's clearly catastrophic for, for those leading the fight to find solutions to global warming. But it's also catastrophic for journalism. So as I said earlier, at the moment, journalism itself is in an existential battle. It's trying to persuade people that we are the people who are to be trusted. And yet, as you say, uh, and it's not just Murdoch, it's it's uh, a, a range of newspapers uh, are pumping out rubbish about climate change. I wrote uh, a couple of years ago about there's a man called James Dellingpole, friend of Boris Johnson's and David Cameron, who spouted absolute nonsense about climate change and yet put his name into a search engine. He has written in every single uh, paper of the right in the UK. He was the go-to guy. There's another guy called Ross Clark now who uh, has written a book called Not Zero. Uh, and he is the go-to guy. Again, put his name into a search engine. You'll find he is all over the place. So these, these papers are so desperate to uh, prop up their ideological skepticism about climate change that they, that they just go to the people who are going to reflect their prejudices. Why does this matter? Because young people are not stupid. So <laughs> young people read this stuff and they just think, well, this is totally irrelevant to my life. Why, why would I read something that I know to be rubbish? And so the very people who are trying to reclaim journalism and to ask begging people to trust it are the people who uh, behave in a way that betrays journalism. And that's why I think journalists themselves are going to have to take a stand, uh, either through their unions or through collective action within these news organizations, and say, we can't go on like this. Fox continues. Uh, I mean, Murdoch continues. He, we, we assume that he's mortal, but uh, he's probably not yet persuaded that he is. But 787 million US dollars and no doubt other settlements to come will be painful, but they're not by any means going to dent their influence. What is the answer? Because, you know, part of the problem is that the people that are watching, that are, that are stuck on these channels, are probably not even hearing about the settlement. I mean, it was, it was the Dominion settlement here in the United States was like the biggest story on every single news platform in the country except for Fox. And there was no apology, no acknowledgement of the damage they'd done, no acknowledgement of culpability, nothing to compare with Murdoch's, uh, you know, this is the most humble day of my life statement in the uh, context of the phone hacking inquiry. Uh, do they just shamelessly sail on, spreading more lies and information, occasionally being held to account, you know, basically still with impunity. Well, Murdoch won't live forever. And um, one of his sons, James, to his credit, has distanced himself because I, he, he believes in the truth about climate change. And uh, so, you know, there is hope that at some point there will be a, a, a change. Um, meanwhile, let, let's think of three different constituents. Governments, as I say, have it in their hands to defend the, the idea of public service, news as a public service through public service broadcasting. And there are probably other ways in which governments can try and 
create subsidies um, for for, new, for necessary news, let's put it like that. Then you've got advertisers. Now, advertisers don't want to be on social media in content that is dishonest or inciting violence or racist. The thing that closed the news of the world was advertisers just saying, we, we don't want to be in this paper. And Murdoch, within seven days, closed a paper that had been going for 160 years. He just saw that there was no future. So I think the corporate world has uh, an opportunity to influence things. And finally, well, two, two, two more things. One, one is readers and viewers, uh, especially if, if the kind of sort of media training, um, media literacy program was uh, implemented. Uh, and finally, I, I think the journalists themselves, uh, it's frightening uh, in an insecure world to stand up to your employer. Uh, but journalism, I think, demands it and the future of uh, the species demands that the journalists working for Murdoch just have to be a, a little bit braver. You know, we all applaud when we see a journalist in Russia, you know, doing something remarkable on the news in, in standing up for the truth. Um, I, I think it's about time that some of the journalists who work for Murdoch uh, grew a spine. In the in the US, Fox most of Fox's revenue, the vast bulk of it, comes from the fees it is paid by cable channels and satellite channels to, you know, carry the Fox News service because it is very popular. I guess we're getting to this point where you have to ask whether it is responsible for a cable service or a satellite channel to carry a so-called news service that has been proven to systematically lie in circumstances where the owners and the commentators all knew they were telling lies. And they were telling lies because they thought their audience wanted to hear lies. Well, literally, once you walk through that looking glass, you are in a parallel universe. If they can rationalise telling lies about the legitimacy of the government for financial gain, why not tell lies about everything else? They've, they have essentially untethered themselves from reality. So the only limit, the limits are, on the one hand, their imagination as to what lies they can dream up. And on the other hand, the credulity of their audience, who have they, of course, radicalized into believing just about anything. As you speak, it makes me think of a final constituency that, that I think has agency here. All these corporations that um, are aiding and abetting Murdoch in various ways, whether they're carrying the content or advertising next door to it, um, these are all run by people of a certain age who have children. <laughs> and you know and I know people who are running these corporations who will be being beaten up by their teenage children about climate change. And I've seen people in, in significant positions of power within fossil fuel companies and, and, and in politics who, have, who are forced to listen to their children. Uh, and they just feel bad over the breakfast table at what they're doing. And I, mm. I think, um, you know, if nothing else works, um, you, you know, if you're, a, if you're an angry teenager and you know that your parents in, in any way are involved uh, in the carriage of this uh, contaminating material, if, if you know if a relative or a friend of yours is involved in that business, it's your duty to make them feel bad about it. Yes, yes, I think that's... I think that's right, and you're right. So all of us should be challenging these lies because, regrettably, 
unless we are all of us more active citizens, the truth is not going to prevail. And in, and in, as we've seen in the United States, it nearly didn't prevail to the point that they came very close to having a coup d'etat. Worrying times. Indeed they are. Well, Alan, thank you very much. I really want to thank you for your leadership as an editor for 20 years at The Guardian and, and now at Prospect Magazine and so many other roles beside. You have been one of the most effective, consistent and persuasive advocates for for honest journalism, accurate journalism. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Malcolm. And um, I shouldn't end this podcast without remembering the phone call where you rang me up and said, bring The Guardian to Australia. And I said, that's a great idea, Malcolm, but we can't afford it. And um, somehow uh, it's still there. Uh, it's about to celebrate its 10th birthday. So um, you, you played a small part in this too, for which I know um, you get um, scant thanks, thanks in certain quarters. <laughs> but, well, I'm not, I don't deserve anything. It was one of the great secrets in, um, in Australian sort of media history the origin story of the Australian Guardian, but nobody was nobody told any lies about it because nobody asked. If someone had asked me, I would have I would have told them. But but it was uh, it was it was no one was no one asked about it. And when when I revealed it all in my memoir, of every all the things in my memoir that sent the people at News Corporation in Murdoch's world into a fury, it was the guard, this guard, story about the Guardian more than anything because they could, and this is the interesting thing, they could not understand that a person who was on the centre-right side of politics would want to encourage the Guardian to be in Australia, even recognising that while, you know, that there were many things in the Guardian that I agreed with, it was very un very unlikely that the Guardian would ever say vote for Malcolm Turnbull, right? So I mean, I, I'm not so I knew that, but I but what they couldn't understand was somebody who believed that diversity and journalism that took facts seriously. I mean, the you know, I I I the thing I just applaud with your journalism and your newspaper. Yes, it it. Um, you know, it is a smaller liberal newspaper. It is, I suppose, it leans centre-left in terms of its editorial opinions, but it doesn't make stuff up. It doesn't run vendettas. It doesn't publish conspiracy theories. It is still tethered to reality. Uh, and that is, that's, the, the, on, on the right, I regret to say, you know, there are not a lot of outlets that are. That's my objective appraisal anyway. podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika. Listener.